When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hey, welcome to Beyond the Scenes, the podcast that goes deeper into segments and topics that originally aired on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. This, this is what you got to think of this podcast is. All right, you got apple pie. Everybody love apple pie, right? It's warm, crispy apple pie. It's good by itself. This podcast is the a la mode. You get that extra scoop of ice cream on that apple pie and it take it to the next level, baby. Listen, now we're going to be talking about a recent segment on the show about gentrification, specifically in Brooklyn, and how the people, landscape, and culture of places like that have changed over the years. Give it a clip. According to the latest census, the white population is decreasing nationwide. For the first time, the white population in the United States has declined. But there's one place their numbers are up almost 9%, Brooklyn. This wealthy white migration has led to increases in rent, cost of living, and requests to speak to the manager. So I followed a trail of succulents and Wes Anderson DVDs deep into the den of gentrifying Brooklyn, where I sat down with Tommy Holly. The white population is going up almost 9%. The black population is going down almost 9%. Would it be safe to say that that's how they're showing Black Lives Matter? By just moving them out? to somewhere else. What they're doing is they're just buying out and cleaning out a neighborhood, and, and it's not right. Tommy's lived in Brooklyn his entire life. Everything's going up sky high, and it's harder to live. So the way out is to sell the house. Tommy's mother bought their brownstone in 1963 when black home ownership in Brooklyn was booming. But lately, black mortgages have been going the way of the dodo bird. Today I'm joined by Daily Show segment producer and Brooklynite, Jordana Hemingway. Jordana, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. Well, good to see you. Good to see you, Madam Brooklyn Knight. And also joining us is a pioneer in urban planning and a professor at Pratt Institute, Ron Schiffman. How you doing, Professor? I'm doing really great. I'm really happy to be with you today. Well, we appreciate you for helping us break down this this very, very difficult topic. You know, Jordana, let's start with you. The thing that I've always loved about The Daily Show is that everybody has the freedom to pitch. It's not set up in some structured system where you do not pitch. You only produce what is pitch. It's like, no. If you come in the building with an issue and you can go, guys, I'm noticing this, then it's something that could eventually work its way onto the show as it did with this. So walk us through your inspiration and how this segment came together. Well, it was very personal. So I just bought my house, but that home buying process was very difficult. And I was 
I wanted to be in Brooklyn. I did not want to go to Queens. I didn't want to go to New Jersey. I was just like, no, I will not leave Brooklyn. This is where I grew up. And I started noticing on the trains that like more white people were like getting off later and later on the train stops. And then I started realizing, (laughs) and I was like, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? And then I started realizing that there was all these developments, but I couldn't afford these houses. I couldn't get in. And I'm like, you know, I have a decent job and I'm just like, why are we being pushed out? And at that point, I saw this article where the white population decreased everywhere else in the United States except Brooklyn, New York. And I said, aha, this is what's happening. I'm not crazy. I'm not seeing things. I'm not being, you know, uh, going down the conspiracy rabbit hole. No, this is what's happening. And black people are selling their homes because it's very tempting when you have a developer flying your house saying they'll give you hundreds of thousands, if not millions to buy your land. And therefore it's just like a rabbit hole where you just kind of keep going down the same thing over and over. It was frustrating. So I always try to pitch things. And as you mentioned, The Daily Show, we are allowed to pitch whatever. And that's one thing that is great about working here. And I try to pitch things that are very personal to me because that's when I can get my teeth in it. And I'm like, okay, no, I'm trying to buy a house. Let me figure out what's going on. And that's how it came about. You were hired during COVID, during the social distancing era a couple of years ago. And so you don't get to hang and you lose the small talk that happens in an office space. But once we got back in the office, you know, you just know somebody like, oh, yeah, Jordana, good to see you. But then when we went out, when I went out to talk with Tommy Holly, who was one of the subjects in the piece, it was evident to me at that moment. I was like, oh, does she live on this street? Is Because... <laughs> For a segment producer to also come out on shoots, it's not uncommon, but it is not a regular occurrence. And so for you to be there and to see the camaraderie between you and Tommy, between camera setups and all of that stuff, talk a little bit about how you became so close to the people in in Brooklyn. Well, so a little background to even go further. So I am married and my husband is African-American slash Puerto Rican, right? And I saw this happen to him when his grandma, who came from South Carolina, Uh, They sold that house in Crown Heights. And now sometimes if we're in the neighborhood, we drive by it and it's, you know, condos, uh, million dollars. Right. And we're like, damn, that was where we used to live. That was like his first college apartment. Um, And then fast forward, you know, he has relatives and Tommy is one of those guys in the neighborhood that's always around. Right. So we know him. He's always on the block with his stick and he's just a very (laughs) cool dude. So we always used to talk to him and it started getting around that, like, you know, people all over that block were basically considering selling their homes. And then I started noticing changes. I'm like, okay, well, there's less cookouts now. Uh, People are not as friendly you know, block parties. <laughs> yeah, block parties, right? There was less of those. <laughs> it's gone. And I was just frustrated. I was frustrated with the home buying journey. I was frustrated with not enough homes. Like right now, to this day, uh, America's 5 million homes short of demand, right? So there's 5 million homeowners that are looking for homes that cannot, you know, buy. Um, in New York, it's just even you see the videos on TikTok and Snapchat where people are online trying to rent apartments. And there's always that joke of like, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. But it shouldn't be like that in New York. You know, New York used to be a community. You should be able to go to your corner store and know your neighbor's name and know, you know, so-and-so down the block. And I just feel like even in um, college, I just felt like that was that was missing. And I think what we have to be careful of with the word gentrification because it sounds so dirty right it sounds really bad 
But as black people, we have to gentrify our own blocks. Our blocks are beautiful, right? It's it's we could gentrify our own blocks. We could call three one one. I mean, on like, hey, listen, they need to pick up this trash. Not call three one one on your neighbor, right? We could actually, you know, plant more trees. And I just think that there's always this resentment, like, oh, well, they only did it when white people came in. And sometimes that's true because sometimes police uh, don't pay attention to the to the natives of that block until more money is being uh, invested into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of frustrating. And that's why I was just like, listen, here is a segue. This is kind of funny that the white population is kind of decreasing everywhere else. This has daily show written all over it, but let's talk about the meat and potatoes. So that's why it came out. Ron, when we talk about gentrification, just as a phenomenon for our listeners, first and foremost, can you define it? Can, let, let's let's just start right there. Let's define gentrification for our listeners. And also, what are some of the indicators that gentrification is starting to happen? Like, I know once you get a Whole Foods, stuff is happening. When the bodega's selling almond milk, you see one of them hacky sack boys. You can't trust nobody with a hacky right. sack. That's when it's, <laughs> but let's define uh, gentrification. What gentrification means to me is when one group of people begin to move in, particularly white people, begin to move into a neighborhood and displace people, displace people, displace jobs, and displace culture. And to me, that is something that one has to fight against. The fact that the area improves economically and uh, provides opportunity for people who live there uh, to make new connections and to live a better life, to me, is a goal in life. And I, uh, Jordana, I think, expressed it much better than I could. What really scares me is that people want to find out what are the indicators of gentrification before they want to do anything about it. And if you study it, and you come up with the database to prove that gentrification is occurring, you've already lost the community. And the way to deal with gentrification or with the displacement issues, which I think are really the most important one, and as Jordana alluded to, also a housing program. We need to build housing that people can afford. Uh, and that housing is too often thought of as a commodity and not really as a right. Uh, how do you really build those communities? How do you really address that? Well, the way to know that your area is gentrifying is to talk to the people there, is to see what's going on on the streets, to go to the supermarkets and the storefronts and the commercial strips, and to see how it breathes. And when I go through neighborhoods, whether it's Bushwick or Red Hook or others, it's palpable that change is taking place. People are afraid. People are afraid... In Bushwick, we were working with a team of people, Make the Road, a number of years ago, a really great group that organizes and engages new, po- new immigrant populations in the, in, their, in, in the everyday life of the city. And people didn't want to see the parks improved. They were afraid that if they got a better park, if they had safer streets and better schools, that they wouldn't live there anymore that it would be for somebody else. And that is a condition that we can't accept. We have to arrive at a point where people can improve the quality of their neighborhood and have the choice to stay, not be pushed out for economic reasons. In many ways, and a friend of mine by the name of Carl Anthony from the West Coast talks about it, it's almost like 
getting on a bus years ago. When a white person walks on the bus, the black person has to leave or give up their seat. And that's what gentrification has been doing as a dynamic. And what we've got to do is do what exactly what you guys did. That skit has to be shown again and again because it, it is the database but we should be looking at, not the statistics, but the fact that people are talking about what it means to them, what, what it means when neighbors come in and, and don't really, are not neighborly. That skit was dynamite. And I think it really, uh, I'm being very serious and we shouldn't be so serious, but it is a serious topic. We really have to begin to talk about housing and housing is a human right. How do we finance it? How do we make sure it's available so that my kids don't have to compete with your kids or mm-hmm. displace you or your neighbor so that we can all live together somehow? And I think that's, that's the real struggle. And if you use a humor as a basis for making this issue and making it an issue that people understand, I think it's really important. And I, and the deep dive into this, I think is really uh, extremely helpful. And I really want to raise a glass uh, and toast you guys for doing it. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. You hear that, Trevor Noah? He just said to give us a raise. Give us, a raise. <laughs> yeah, give them a raise. <laughs> <laughs> Are there ways for those moving in to ingratiate themselves to the culture? There was a young man. God, I can't remember his name, Jordana, but there was a there was a young white guy in his early twenties who lost a job after moving to New York and walking around the neighborhood and making fun of the bodegas, not realizing that he was in a food desert. He was making a video complaining that there were no grocery stores. And every time he Googled a grocery store, Google sent him to a bodega. And he didn't even, he just was just completely unaware that where you've chosen to live for so long has marginalized the community. Okay, so I just moved to New York and I'm trying to go grocery shopping. And so I type in like grocery stores on my Apple Maps and like every one I go to, like I'm walking too, like they're like this or like like this, like bro, that's not a grocery store. Like I'm trying to get like eggs, yogurt, like cheese, like like that, right? Like where are the Kroger's and like the Whole Foods at? Is there a way to educate people so that they don't come in and be disrespectful or is their presence in a way inherently net negative for the neighborhood? I'll say right now, I don't think that guy should deserve to get fired, right? I think he deserved to get educated. I think that he didn't know. I think a lot of people from, you know, the Midwest, the South, everybody comes to New York and is just like... Which is where he was from. Keep going, yeah. You know, and they're like, wait a minute, where's my Publix? Where's my... We don't got that. We got Carlos Bodega, you know? Yeah. And um, another thing we kind of touched on the piece, and I kind of feel like it matters in this point is sometimes gentrification is not necessarily a race thing either, right? I think sometimes it could be a class thing. I think it could be sometimes maybe who has more money um, because, uh, you know, maybe I'm a gentrifier, right? Maybe I, I probably gentrify somebody and maybe I'm complaining about the lack of almond milk, right? There was one guy in the piece, he was a Jewish guy in our piece. I don't know if you remember him and he lived in Crown Heights and he got pushed out. So sometimes it's not necessarily like the 
the the little white girl, the little white guy who come to New York with these, you know, big dreams. Sometimes it's these finance bros that are gentrifying. Sometimes it's just, you know, people with more money. And I think housing as a right is the bigger conversation. Everybody should have fair access to housing. You know, the black home ownership rate right now is less than what it was like 10 years ago. It's getting worse for black homeowners. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? We don't necessarily have the access. We don't necessarily have the tools. I mean, I don't want to go down the whole rabbit hole, but you go from 40 acres and a mule and it's just like, oh, that was so long ago. Real estate is the greatest transfer of wealth there is to mankind, right? Like every generation, right? If you have real estate, your family is just set up for better. You know what I mean? And there's no, it is what it is. If you have some land, you could leverage that. You could borrow against it. You could, housing you need, housing and transportation you need. So when you look at just people like that guy on that TikTok video, um, who's just like, Where, why is it no bodegas? And it's sad that black people, people of color have been living in these neighborhoods, like where there isn't like a regular grocery store. Why is that my grocery store only has like chips and snacks and stuff like that? I'm not trying to, get the bodega bros, but we should have that equal opportunity too. And what Ron touched on, like sometimes there is a fear. I remember living in Red Hook, this one neighborhood in Brooklyn, you know, back then when even my black friends didn't want to go there because it was hood. They're like, where are you going? And I remember seeing it and I remember being scared, like, well, shoot, there's a new Tesla being built. The Ikea coming down, are they going to raise my rent? And that fear is something that you can't describe because it's just like, well, I'm working. I graduated college. How do I keep up? Right. And you see the influx of people. What do you do in that case as a black person, as a black woman? There's not enough programs, you know, um, and it's bad enough that like maybe our parents didn't have the home or maybe our parents sold the home. Right. Not knowing, not realizing that maybe I should hold on to it. So it's just really messed up all around. You know, the whole issue of housing as a means for building wealth obviously it occurs and it's a it it's a major benefit for many but for others you know a lot of people bought homes and invested their life savings and if they lived in some parts of Detroit or they lived in some parts of uh, of Cleveland or even parts of New York City they lost that wealth they lost that housing they lost the housing because they couldn't afford to improve it they didn't have access to loans and when i started working again in bedstuy in the 60s we held hearings on insurance redlining because somebody because of the color of their skin could got could not get the color, the kind of insurance they needed for the building they couldn't get the home improvement loans and so how do we really deal with this systemic racism that permeates a lot of what we're talking about at the same time we also have to think about how we create housing as a right that doesn't diminish over time uh, other people of low income getting it. It's not if we if everybody makes so much housing money on housing, it means the next generation is not going to be able to afford it. Mm. So housing as a as a financial vehicle, as a commodity, is really something I think we have to address. And and we have to find other ways of really building wealth in communities, as well as investing in housing and in real estate. Ron, what are some of those other negative and positive impacts, if any, that gentrification has on a on a particular community. We've talked about loss of culture, but what about also, you know, from an educational aspect, are there any ripple effects? Well, one of the benefits that occurs is when you have a mixed income community, and it doesn't have to be based only on race, uh, but as Jordana mentioned, on economic 
diversity, is that the younger kids who are impoverished and grow up in mixed neighborhoods apparently are doing much better than kids who grow up and are isolated from uh, the contacts. Just pure contacts are important to have within a society. And I, I'm a great believer in social and economic integration. It's, it's in my roots, it's in my blood, and it's something I've always fought for and have really worked towards over my life. But the fact of the matter is, I think we need to begin to look at investing in communities so the people who are in those communities can grow. So they can grow culturally, they can grow economically, uh, and they can uh, really benefit. And what we now have is this idea that you improve communities by replacing them. So we now have to start thinking about providing the best education for kids wherever they are. We have to make sure that what we're doing is we're providing opportunities uh, for people to access all of the the mechanisms that they need in order to get housing, the technical expertise, the initial financing, uh, the ability to stay within their own homes if they have some economic difficulty. A home is more than just the four walls. It's the people who are in the neighborhood, the person you can call who can take care of your kids if you have an emergency, have to go off somewhere. It's the churches, it's the networks, it's, it's the friendships. And how do you, how do we really begin to value that? I think what we need to do is really develop a universal housing program that everybody has the right to a, a house. Uh, everybody has a right to a house in a community that provides them with education and health. You know, what we do often as professionals is we go into a community and we t- ask them, what's more important, education or housing or health? Well, you know, if you're living in the community, you want all of those. And the community should work to doing all of those and weaving those together. So I would argue we need not only comedians, but we need weavers, people who will take these ideas and weave them together to create more viable communities. And the first one is to stop the speculation. I think we really need to make sure that people can get the, invest in housing, they can make get their money back so that savings can grow. But you can't get this enormous speculation where somebody buys the building, two years later flips it for $2 million more than they had before. Uh, and as a result, everybody loses. You lose the quality of the neighborhood and you're losing the networks that you was, had established before. So I would argue that we need anti-speculation taxes. I would argue that we take those taxes Ooh. and direct them to low-income families. Okay, now I want to get into that after the break because I want to talk about who's to blame. Is it the people that are buying? Is it the people that are selling? Is it the redlining? Is it the government? We'll be back with more. This is Beyond the Scenes. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, 
even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Beyond the scenes, we are back. Now, we have broken down what gentrification is and the ways that it negatively impacts communities on a socioeconomic level and education and opportunities and the stripping of culture. And and we forgot to talk about Jordana. They paint over murals in some of these spots. Sure do. They just, what's that, a nice picture that an artist did to add some character to the neighborhood? Let me just put a nice coat for no reason. Uh, but, Ron, I'd like to start with you, and let's talk a little bit about how crime and policing changes. In the gentrification piece, when I had spoken with uh, some of the wonderful, wonderful women that are Brooklynites, they talked about how, you know, people will just call 311 for random the, complaints. The snitchers. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but you said it, so let's get into it, Ron. <laughs> well, you said it, and I'm copying you because you're absolutely <laughs> right. And 311, you know, people move into a, should move into a neighborhood because they know it, all right? And they should be move into that neighborhood because they want to be part of that community. They want to be able to walk down the streets. When I, again, I'm an old man, so I always refer to the past, right? When I moved first you know, New Bedford-Stuyvesant, it had 400 or 500 block associations. There was even a group called the Association of Associations. It was a network of people. (laughs) They were friends. They were neighbors. And if you want to move into a neighborhood, you move in there and become part and adopt its culture. Uh, And over time, cultures will change. They'll adapt, but it's the abrupt speed that people want to change places. It's the speculative nature. Why should people get a, a, a call a week from a real estate agent to sell their property? Why should they be harassed to sell their property? Obviously, in that skit with you and Tommy Holly, you know, he talks about how much he paid and how much he'll get if he sells the house. It's a very attractive thing to sell. But what's he going to do when he sells? Is he going to move to Florida and face the racism and, and antagonism of that state? Or is he going to lose all his friends on that block? Prices are just skyrocketing. The house is going for $3 million. Before, Wait, I'm sorry. What did you say? The houses in the, uh, Best Tiger for $3 million now. $3 million. How much you pay for this house? $23,000. $23,000. And you can sell it right now? For close to $2 million. Oh, you got to go. Wait a minute. You don't want to say that was should stay. Well, I did that <laughs> before you told me what you was getting. <laughs> you know, the money is, is great, but it's not everything. 
we've got to provide alternatives and we've got to make sure that we are we slow down the speed of change and and get to people to understand the neighborhood they move in it's not just a place to buy a house it's a place to live in and you have to live and you have to work with your neighbors and if people don't do that if they don't understand that then they really shouldn't be welcomed I think one of the issues, or at least what I gather, and Jordana, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the issues that I think Tommy Holly was dealing with was that he could stay there and preserve the culture, or he could take the money and have an increased quality of living for the back half of his life. And I think that's ultimately what I felt like he was kind of struggling with, because, you know, your dollar's going to go a lot further in Florida. Now, granted, you're going to probably get called the N-word a couple of times. There's mm-hmm. an N-word tax you have to pay, yeah. depending on the county. <laughs> but, you know, I think that that's what a lot of residents, you know, are dealing with. It's just what I found so interesting, though, Jordana, was in spite of people calling in noise complaints and increases in racial profiling or even the stealing of Amazon packages, it seems that a lot of the black Brooklynites still have a resolve where even with the changes in their relationship with law enforcement as white residents become uncomfortable with black people who were indigenous to that to that block, somehow they're still okay with staying. Why do you think that is? I think it's just the principle, right? It's like, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving, you know? Uh, and that's how I felt too. Uh, previously, we talked about some of the signs of gentrification. And for me, the sign is like, there's three. There's the white woman running with her dog late at night. If I see that happening, okay, something's going down. There is the white woman asking the Jamaican restaurant for a free sample. I'm like, okay, what's going on? <laughs> and then there's uh, the white person that's just basically complaining about the Labor Day parade or complaining about a block party, right? I think the the issue that we have as Brooklynites is, I love Brooklyn so much. I love it. I talk, you ask any Brooklynite where they're from, they don't say I'm a New Yorker. They say I'm from Brooklyn. That's how I introduce myself. So of course I wanna share my borough with anybody and everybody. The issue I have is that when you guys come here and you call the cops instead of introducing yourself and you, you know, you complain about a block party that has been happening, like the West, like the Labor Day parade, for instance, that's been going on for over 30 years. You complain about it. You complain about the jerk chicken being sold on the corner. And and that's the issue we have. Of course, I would love people to talk and talk about Brooklyn, visit Brooklyn and live in Brooklyn. But I think the sense of community is just gone. And I feel like, and Tommy pointed to it, he would stay if he didn't feel like an outsider. Do you understand how hard it was? I remember when he told that story, you know, he was moved to tears. This white woman holding her purse. And this is an old man with his old magic stick, remember? And it's just mm-hmm. like the, how degrading was that, right? And this guy has been there for decades. And it's just like that feeling of feeling like an outsider in your own neighborhood where you were born, where you grew up. It just, it sucks. So there's two people. There's some people that says, you know what? I'm going to leave because the area around me, the neighborhood is not the neighborhood no more. I can't afford the bodega, right? Because the bodega switch into hemp milk, almond milk, all these different types of milks. Um, I can't afford anything else going on, like the laundry mat, the nail salon, everything has gone up. So let me just take my dollars to South Beach, wherever, right? Like LeBron and just move. And then there's the people that are like myself that are just really trying to hold on. I think it's so important for, for Black people in Brooklyn, if you have the might, if you have the will to stay into your homes, because we're losing that. And I don't think, I think it's just really sad when I 
talk about it. I get emotional when I hear people selling their homes. I'm like, damn, come on, man. What do we got to do? You know, and it's really hard when you have flyering at your house. When, as, as Ron mentioned, you know, you could be house rich, but cash poor. So now how do you maintain your house? Right. How do you, you know, upkeep the, the furnace or the boiler and all that stuff? So it's it's bigger than just having a house. Having a house is a lot of responsibility, but we need the access. And there's a lot of grant programs that people like to throw around that word. Oh, you could get a grant. You could get a grant. Where? Tell me. <laughs> I would love to know. It's so hard to get some of these programs. And it's it's unfortunate that the easy way out is leaving. Who has the will to really just fight all the time? It's really hard, but I implore people to to try to stay in Brooklyn and try to meet your neighbors. I think white, Spanish, whatever, because even I had to have a moment of reflection where like, crap, am I a gentrifier? Because I moved into a predominantly Spanish neighborhood and they play Bad Bunny all times of night. But I'm like, okay, well, I can't call the, you know, I can't call the cops on these people. I don't want to be the person that Tommy and, and Judith were talking about. So it's like meeting my neighbors, right? Meeting um, people, going to the community garden and, and introducing myself, say, hey, you know what? I'm really good at gardening. How can I help out? And I think if people who moved into Brooklyn took that approach versus just moving here, going to their, you know, fancy coffee shops and just treating us like outsiders, we have no problem. I promise you, every Brooklynite loves to boast about Brooklyn. I don't know one Brooklynite that's oh, like, I know. <laughs> you know, yeah. we would love to share it. I just think it's the way I think Tommy touched on it or no, Judith did about like, you know, integration, right? People from Brooklyn tell you they from Brooklyn when you didn't even ask where they was from. Facts. <laughs> <Right. laughs> what would you like to eat? That's today? for sure. Brooklyn. Yeah. <laughs> if you say so. I grew up in the Bronx and it took a, uh, it was a psychic change to move to Brooklyn. You know, because Br- Bronxites would never move to Brooklyn in those days. Uh, we moved there because we w- were able to get a house at a very low price. And that was in the 60s. So we've been living there for a long time. And it was when people were leaving the city. The city was losing population. In the 70s, you know, New York City was losing maybe 30,000 apartments a year. It was shrinking. And what saved the city were the community-based organizations and the groups like Bedsty Restoration, the groups in Fort Greene, the groups in Red Hook and all other places that stabilized the neighborhoods, that fought for federal government to stop their what were basically discriminatory lending policies. Uh, changing the FHA to begin to lend money to stop what was really uh, what were fast foreclosure schemes. You would go into a neighborhood, East New York, for instance, you'd go into that neighborhood, uh, predominantly working class white. Some people were beginning to integrate it. Then all of a sudden, people's racist fears came up. They would hire people to have stage fights in the street. They would then panic. They buy, buy the buildings low. They would then get the federal government to insure them. They'd sell to a black or a Latino family. The next thing they did six months later, they would foreclose on that and turn the building over. And a couple of years later, the neighborhood was abandoned. They pitted white racist fears against whites and blacks. And it really was, and we had to take them to court. We could document that there were places that were basically, 
using government programs and manipulating them for fast for these fast foreclosure schemes. To that point, Ron, then this sounds like gentrification to a degree is something of a bunch of different entities all working in concert. So if that is true, who is the real villain of gentrification? Like, what is the root of the problem contributing to it? Because we talk about the commodification of housing. You yeah. have real estate developers that are predatory. Airbnb is a big issue as well. Yeah. You got everybody wanting to flip a house because they don't watch two shows in a row yeah. on on HGTV or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, is it the government? Is it the developers? Or is it the homeowners? You know, because, you know, Bloomberg and, you know, like there's there have been policies and redlining that also have helped as well to contribute to this issue. So is there any one specific smoking gun? There isn't one specific smoking gun, but there is a whole network of systemic racist policies that have come to play a, a, a ongoing role, whether or not people know doing are doing it willingly or unwillingly, the systems still persist. And we you still have real estate agents that are involved in racial steering. You'll be sent to one neighborhood, I'll be sent to another neighborhood. Uh, uh, we've got to begin to monitor those quickly. A lot of this is because government turns a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. We need a city planning commission. We need a development entity in New York City that is aggressively fostering the healthy development of all our communities, looking for a diverse goals of building a diverse multicultural city. And we haven't been doing that of late. What we're doing in some cases is we, we're going into an area like East New York, all right, and we're building new housing. We're displacing 20 families. We're building 100 units of housing, 25% which will be low income, so that it will in many ways accommodate the ones we displaced. But 75% of the building is going to be super wealthy. Because we, in order to provide low-income housing, we're going to need the wealth and the income flow from the upper-income families. That kind of inclusionary housing works if you want to build a racially, in, economically integrated community. It doesn't work when you want to build more housing. And what we need to do is say we're no longer going to allow it only to be the private sector, but government has to be committed to a housing policy to meet the needs of every quartile of our population. And we have to start really promoting what really are our healthy communities. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to just say it right now. I think real estate is just racist, right? Currently in 2022, if I was to get my house appraised, and a white person was to sit in this house and get it appraised, they're going to get a better appraisal value. That happened during COVID. There was a black family that happened to in Seattle. It happens all over the country. So now, not only let's say you can't buy a house, but then you do the right thing, you save your little money, you get your little FHA loan, you do all the right things. But now when it's time to bet for appraisal, automatically I'm getting less. So we just have to really take a deeper look at real estate and figure out how can we change it, right? How do we get the government involved? How do we speak out? And I really think it's important as a homeowner, as a black woman, not only just sitting back and just, you know, saying it is what it is. No, we need to hold our local officials accountable. 
So maybe that means going to let every, and now it's on Zoom, Roy. So you could go and speak up on the on the meeting and knowing your council member's name and say, okay, well, what are we doing about the trash on this street? What are we doing about the you know abandoned building on this street? And really rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty. And when you talk about East New York, I remember when I was looking into the home buying process, I said, you know what? I want to move where there might be a little bit of action. So that means looking up where are they pulling permits? Where are some of these developers going? If you don't want to be a problem, you don't want to be a part of the problem, right? So I know I didn't want to be that person that's going to buy a piece of land and make it a luxury building. No, I want to be, I have ego, I have pride. So I'm like, no, I'm going to plant myself here. I'm going to buy a house in East New York, Cypress Hills area, and I'm not leaving. And I want to be part of that change. And I think sometimes a lot of like, we just automatically assume, let's go to South Carolina. Let's go to, you know, ATL. I love Wakanda. I love ATL. Don't get me wrong. But there's great stuff for black people in Brooklyn too. And I just think that we have this automatic, like, you know what, it's way too expensive. Let me just leave. Whereas others are trying to, they see the value in Brooklyn. And it's just really hard. And and racism is threaded throughout the whole real estate process. The other thing that I want to put on the table is I think we really need to start talking about housing that is rental housing. Not everybody wants to be a homeowner. Not everybody Mm -hmm. has the ability to be a homeowner. And so we need to think about how we increase the supply of rental housing in the city of New York in such a way that it's woven into the fabric of communities, that it's right next to middle income, uh, right next to home ownership areas. Uh, We have to think about social housing, uh, public housing, housing that's owned by the... uh, and meets the needs of some of the very poor. You go into Red Hook with Red Hook houses. Some of that was built originally in 47, occupied primarily by white families. It was a step up. It is, New York City still has thousands upon thousands of people on the waiting list to get into public housing. We need to expand the supply of affordable rental housing in the city of New York. How can residents stop the harassment that they get at the hands of their landlords as well. Like we're talking about big government systems and whatever, but sometimes you just got an asshole who's running your building and who's trying to run you off as well. So uh, talk a little bit about that, both of you, if you can. Well, one of the things that occurred, you know, during previous to COVID was putting pressure on the de Blasio administration to stop the harassment that was going on in Crown Heights and the harassment that was going on in East New York and in many other places uh, in the city. And so setting up these anti-harassment units where people really know they could go into South Brooklyn legal services or they could go into Williamsburg legal services and get support by some of the uh, legal uh lawyers there to go after the landlords. It really is important because that was happening. They would come in, they buy a building, right? They'd vacate one or two apartments and they'd start making noise and they would do all sorts of things to drive the tenants out. And part of it is you have to knock on the people. You have to start organizing people, help them understand what their rights are and provide the legal and the technical and the organizational capacity to follow through. A housing program involves organizing, it involves, uh, uh, you know, financing, it involves regulation, and the role of government has to be one that is not passive. And people can't 
have to not be passive. We have to really stand up for our neighbors and begin to organize on a community-by-community basis. It's all about the neighbors. I think that happened in my old building at Red Hook, just basically talking to each apartment, like on the elevator, like, hey, have you been getting these letters? What's going on? You know, and just organizing. So I think, um, you know, the power of like five is better than the power of one, right? I could write one email all day, but now if we have five different emails coming in, they have to pay attention. So I definitely think organizing like with like the anti-harassment law firms and just trying to say, hey, listen, something weird is going on here. Um, I don't know who to go to. Can you help me? You know, and yeah. it's unfair because you look at the rent- rental prices, the average amount of rent right now in New York is like $3,000, depending where you're at. You know, you look at certain places. <laughs> and it's unfortunate because people are lining up. I remember one comedian said, oh, New York is dead, right? And now New York came back tenfold, right? Now what? Now there's no houses to be bought. There's no apartments for rent. And you're just stuck in this vicious cycle. And I think it's bigger than just, you know, it's obviously politics, it's obviously government, but we have to take action too. And we have to do it now, by the way, because if one of the things we have been looking at is what will the impact of climate change on New York City be? You lived in Red Hook, and so you know what happened, uh, you know, just 10 years ago this fall, right? Uh, when all of a sudden the waters came in and what saved a lot of the neighborhood with the green space around the public housing because it absorbed water and it never got credit for that. that. Meanwhile, the folks in public housing didn't have electricity for months. What's going to happen to that huge supply of public housing, which is in, in harm's way within 15 to 20 years, we're going to lose those units and you're going to have to relocate those families. We can't accommodate them today. What are we going to do a few years from now? How do we really begin to engage government today? And that's why the timing of your episode was really crucial. How do we, how do we engage government so that we really are developing and using the new infrastructure money and the new climate change money to make sure we're not displacing people, but we're emplacing them, that we're beginning to build communities that will ha- live beyond the first mortgage cycle? No, absolutely. Well, coming up after the break, we're going to talk solutions. We've talked about what gentrification is. We're trying to figure out who's to blame, but now let's figure out how to Fix it. First off, we need more people playing music out there. Are you doing that yet, Jordana? In your new spot in Brooklyn? I am. Point that, point that speaker out <laughs> at the street. Okay? You gotta be, that, that's one to live. That's a free one. We'll get into the more technical ones after the break. This is Beyond the Scenes. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge 
indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. Let's talk solutions here for a second, Ron. And Jordana, until we get the policies in place, until we get, you know, everything that you all are talking about in terms of establishing, you know, proper rental properties and proper policies and to stop predatory real estate, you know, corporations and conglomerates from coming in. How can the people who currently, currently, who the people who are currently part of these Brooklyn neighborhoods and not just Brooklyn, matter of fact, let's open this up to the whole country. Gentrification just ain't a Brooklyn thing. How can people in these neighborhoods help to honor the rich cultural history in the places that they're now, you know, have chosen to be a part of? I think the first thing is to celebrate the places that we all live in. I think what uh, uh, has been going on uh, annually now for a great number of years in Bed-Stuy, where there's an event on Fulton Street near Restoration Plaza, I think is a really important event. Uh, There have been similar efforts over the last few years in Red Hook to really bring people together, show them the waterfront, make sure that the groups working on this show and and actually parade the diversity and the multiculturalism that exists. I think that really is a major selling point. Let's attract people based on the quality of a neighborhood, not based on really just making money. That shouldn't be what we talk about when we're dealing with housing. I think we really have to start looking at how we take back our neighborhoods and promote them. When you talk about celebration, I think that's the most important thing. As I mentioned before, you know, going to the block parties, bragging about being from Brooklyn, knowing your neighbors, and making sure that, you know, you're active in your community. I know sometimes people think, oh, that's corny, oh, I don't got time for it. You have to make time because sooner or later you're going to look up and be like, what neighborhood am I in? What block am I on? So you have to be on your local official's neck. You have to figure out what permits are being filed. You have to take action in your neighborhood, even if you're not a homeowner, right? Just like rental, you know, renters are equally as important, right? Because you have to say, okay, well, listen, I'm paying, you know, let's say for instance, a two family apartment, I'm paying some of your your mortgage. So my rights matter too. And I think it's about being active, not being complacent, and really saying, hey, listen, I love it here. How can I make it better, right? I think as Black people especially, we have to be the ones to gentrify our own blocks. I think that we cannot sit back and get mad when other people start seeing the value in our neighborhoods. You can't cry over spilt milk, right? Because like, even to the point of like, if you can find the local businesses and support the local businesses, what's wild is that, you know, the bodega guy that we were talking about at the top of the show he could have made that into a win for himself by just going, there's no grocery store, so I love going to bodegas, and I'm going to go to all the bodegas around me and buy a little bit from all the bodegas, and it would have been one big, hey, support local business, kumbaya. But instead, you got fired. <laughs> Years ago, there was a group in Fort Greene that created 
uh, worked on Myrtle Avenue and Fulton Street uh, and called it Bogolan. It was based on a, a, a African fabric uh, and the, the various different colors that went into uh, that fabric. We have to find those keys again. You know, the Brooklyn Movement Center uh, has been doing a lot of work organizing residents. We have to begin to again, build those foot soldiers within the neighborhoods that really talk about the culture and tell the stories about the history. Think about places in like Weeksville Historic mm. Society and what it's doing and what it really means to have these roots in a community. It's, it, it's something that we really have to embrace and not run away from. And just taking the power of your dollar, right? You know, the black spending dollar, right? We have to invest into our local businesses also. Like I make an effort to go to my local hardware store when I know I could easily get it shipped or go to Home Depot correctly. You know, you have to also start circulating that dollar in that community. So businesses kind of want to stay, you know, or those mom and pop operations want to be there and versus selling their bodega versus selling their laundromat, they know they have a loyal customer base versus kind of taking the easy, easy way out and getting your groceries delivered or whatever. Try to save your spending dollar and put it back in the community because it all, everything affects everything. Right. And people are people at the basics. We are all human. We want fair housing. We want fair food. We want fair access to housing is a right. And if we start treating our dollar as it's powerful and start making sure like we are active in our community, nobody, nobody can stop us. I don't care what you say. Ron, you have seen innumerable iterations and evolutions of various boroughs in New York. What does the future look like? Let's, let's end on that. You know, what, what does the future look like? Because, you know, we have people like Jordana and her husband who are going to be there. They ain't leaving. They re- Jordana might mess around, run for city council. What's it called over there? Alderman? I don't know. I, I don't know what they call it. What do you think these neighborhoods are going to be like in the next 10 to 20 years, Ron? Well, I think we have to change the path we're on. And I think we have to change that path right away. What I'd like to see us is to begin to take some of the money that we have and have access to and begin to reinvest it in our neighborhoods by building up those neighborhoods and investing in them dramatically. We in New York State have something called the stock transfer tax. That tax is on the books. It's collected every day, but it's rebated. That's a tax that if you invest $100,000, the tax is $30. That's how de minimis it is. That would generate 12 to $15 billion a year for New York State that we should invest in infrastructure. We should invest it in transportation and in low and moderate income housing so that we can really begin to renovate our neighborhoods and generate the kind of quality neighborhoods that meet the needs of every income group. We have to start telling the stories, the stories of how neighbors function and work together so that they are the things that attract people to our neighborhoods rather than just thinking that we're going to make money on housing. I think we have to critically address the issue of climate change because it is going to dramatically affect every one of us. The number of people that were taken ill because of the recent heat wave in New York, we can't measure. 
We don't really know, but I'm willing to bet it was significant. It's going to get worse. The number of days of over 100 degrees is going to increase dramatically over the next 10 to 15 years. That's a challenge that we have to convert into an opportunity, an opportunity to build stable, viable, livable, multiracial communities within the city of New York. Ones that allow people to build their own build on their own culture and create and, and really celebrate the diversity of this city. And that, to my mind, is what we should be working towards. And using the challenges, the money that may be coming from the federal government, the money that we could generate in New York State and use as a model for the nation, the way we did in the 30s, uh, and really begin to think about how we build a post-racial society, how a po- how we can really build a multicultural democracy. I think that really is something we have to work on and work towards and invest in. It's just not going to happen unless we change those policies. To your point about climate change, I mean, there was a couple of floods that happened last year and people were dying in basement apartments, right? Right. Um, Flooding, heat, it's getting really bad. I think that housing across New York is just such at a turning point right now. So we definitely have to take action. We definitely have to make sure that we talk to each other and mobilize and say, hey, what can we do to make our living conditions better? Because as Ron touched on, as you touched on, it's it's a right. I think housing is a right that some people find it so unattainable, but it's yours. And I think the other thing too is just like, Stop changing the names of the neighborhoods. That's one thing that really ticks me off. Like when you guys come here, I don't want to, like even South Bronx, it's now Sobro, you know, Bedford Stuyvesant mm-hmm. Heights. Like from the inception of the time you guys come, it's like, oh, I don't want to call it Bed-Stuy no more. Well, no, it's Bed-Stuy. Respect the neighborhood and stop with all the acronyms. Well, I think that's as good a place to end. And uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful, proud Brooklynite. Jordana, thank you for going beyond the scenes. And Ron, thank you for everything that you have contributed to preserving culture and building culture and making sure that people respect culture. Thank you all both for going beyond the scenes with us. Well, thank you for what you're doing. I just try to crack the jokes. You guys do the real work. Listen to The Daily Show Beyond the Scenes on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.